Hello, I'm Jan Marshall and welcome to this Melbourne Business School podcast. Today I'm talking with Mara Olikans, Professor of Management here at Melbourne Business School. Mara teaches negotiations on the part-time MBA program and her research focus is on relational resilience and adversity in negotiation, covering such topics as gender, trust violations and ethics. Her research has been published in leading international journals, including the Journal of Management. Today, I'm taking the opportunity to get to understand how people can negotiate a good outcome for themselves. And to start us off, Mara, we hear a lot in the news that there's a gender wage gap, and this continues to be a discussion we have. Can you tell us a bit about that from your research and what you know? Sure. So I think the first thing to say about the gender wage gap is that it's been very stable for a long period of time. Um, sitting at about 17%, but there's some evidence that it's actually starting to grow wider. And the prediction from economists is that it will actually continue to widen for some years before that trend starts to reverse. So this is clearly a concern thinking not just in the short term for women and their savings, but also thinking in the long term about where they end their careers and how they go into retirement. Obviously, a lot of reasons for why the gender wage gap occurs, but there's been a lot of research interest in um, what negotiation might contribute to it because we have good evidence that the wage gap is smaller in unionised workforces where people negotiate on behalf of women, but where women negotiate on behalf of themselves, such as in white-collar professions, the gender wage gap is wider. And so, you know, interesting question for researchers over the last decade has been how do women and men differ and what is it that they do when they when they negotiate that might contribute to the gender wage gap. What can you tell us about what men and women do differently? Quite a lot of things that they do differently, which I consider just to be differences in the very core components of the negotiation process. And the first of those is even before the negotiation starts, which is that men have a much greater propensity to initiate negotiation than women. So men far more often than women will simply ask, is it possible to do a little bit better than that? Can you improve on that offer? Whereas women are very reluctant to initiate negotiations. And the reason that this becomes problematic is that we have good evidence um, that just asking, can you do better, just initiating a negotiation almost invariably leads to an improvement in your outcome. So choosing not to negotiate means that you are actually working against yourself in terms of the quality of your outcomes. Why is it that women don't put themselves forward and ask that question? There are a few things going on there. One is that women see a lot less of the world as being negotiable than men do. So if you ask them what they think it's possible to negotiate, negotiate, they have a much more narrow view. Um, So actually this was brought home to me a few years ago when I was um, ran a workshop for women and among the people in the workshop was the HR director for an organisation who said to me, I'd like you to come and do this workshop for women in my organisation because my observation is that when men come in to negotiate with me, they can think of 20 things that would make their work life better, whereas when women come in to negotiate with me, they can think of five things to ask for. And what I would like is that the women can ask for as many things as the men. So first, it just seems that women see less of the world to be negotiable. Um, The second part of the issue is really to do with the way women and men see relationships. So because we have a 
kind of competitive image of what it means to negotiate, that we see it most typically as a competitive process that sits better with the way that men see the world than the way that women see the world. So women tend to focus much more on relationships and preserving and protecting relationships, not just in the moment but going into the future, whereas men view the world and relationships as more independent. And so for them, it seems less problematic to do something that disrupts a relationship now in terms of where the relationship might go into the future. So because women have a stronger future focus, um, they're reluctant to engage in behaviours that they worry will disrupt the relationship. And the third component of it is women have a stronger expectation that their contributions to an organisation will be recognised and rewarded without having to ask. And they almost see it as a failure that they need to ask. So the reluctance to initiate a negotiation about work conditions often is in part related to the why should I even need to ask. Um, if I'm not being offered improved conditions or an improved salary, then I must not be doing a good enough job. Just picking up on that point then, Mara, why is it that women feel they don't have to ask or uh, should be it should be just seen that they are rewarded, that having to ask to be rewarded for what they're doing somehow is a is a failure on their behalf, if I've got that correct? Yes, so I think here it's that we are more likely to think our contributions should be visible and should be recognised um, and that the, the self-promotion that comes with pointing out our accomplishments and our achievements sits better with the kinds of behaviours that are associated with male stereo gender stereotypes than with female gender stereotypes. So again, in part, it's this idea that women are much more focused on um, a communal orientation and a relationship orientation. You can almost think of it as a sort of tall poppy syndrome, that I don't want to stick my head up and that I hope people will notice that the contributions that I'm making, whereas with the more sort of agentic traits that go with men, assertiveness, um, I won't necessarily say self-promotion, but um, it, it is less difficult to call attention to your achievements because it fits better within that male stereotype. So you know, if we wanted to go back to the way women and men are socialised, um, women are socialised to preserve and protect relationships and highlighting how you as an individual um, contribute and the accomplishments you as an individual make goes against the grain in that sense and violates stereotypes. Whereas for men who are actually taught to be independent and socialised to be more independent, um, drawing attention to accomplishments fits better with that stereotype. So just since I've mentioned stereotypes, I should say that a lot of the work that I do around this is to do with the expectations that are established by male and female gender stereotypes and how negotiating um, has different consequences for fitting with or violating those stereotypes for women and men. And I would assume if you're in a workplace culture, that too has a set of norms and uh, effects that will make it easier or harder for women to, to step up and negotiate as well. Right. So one of the things, a lot of the research that we've done is experimental. So a lot of it is laboratory-based um, because it gives us a little bit more control to explore questions like that. Mm. And we do have some research which looked at whether if you're in a communal culture or a more individualistic agentic culture, which we um, treated as, uh, actually we compared a mythical sort of consulting firm culture with more a not-for-profit kind of culture. So a lot of the effects that we saw and a lot of the backlash that we saw towards women um, who negotiate occurred in those more individualistic cultures. 
Um, whereas in communal cultures, which um, encourage and foster um, problem solving, we didn't see that backlash. And so what's interesting about this is that if we kind of go back to what the stereotype of a typical uh, negotiation is, then the kinds of behaviours that are associated with effect effective negotiators are things like um, being assertive, being rational, um, and again, they fit well with the male gender stereotype, whereas female gender stereotypes talk about people who are compromising and accommodating, maybe a little bit emotional, a little bit less rational. So the first thing that happens is if we accept that the effective negotiator is someone who is assertive and rational and independent and looking for outcomes for themselves, if women try and embrace those behaviours, they're actually violating our expectations of them as women, and this triggers a lot of backlash. So if you'd like me to talk about the backlash, I can... Yeah, there, so there are two components of this now. Yeah. So there's the backlash component. There's also what happens when you move to a communal culture. So the backlash component, um, just the act of initiating a negotiation is seen to violate the female gender stereotype. So it doesn't... It turns out it doesn't matter how I ask you for something. The very fact that I'm asking for something is seen to be, in a sense, wrong for women. And so already just by asking, um, other people see me as being pushy, aggressive, um, a bad team member, someone I don't want to work with in the future. So in a sense, the fact that women choose not to initiate negotiations is good intuition on their part because when they do initiate those negotiations, they get punished for it. Um, so at least in terms of their relationships and, of course, in the workplace, relationships are really important. Mm. Um, what's ironic about this whole model is that even though the stereotypical traits of the effective negotiator are all around being assertive and self-oriented um, and rational, you know, we know from many decades of research that the really effective negotiators are the negotiators who are good communicators, good problem solvers, good at building and preserving relationships. And actually, these are all the characteristics that one would normally associate with a female gender stereotype. So what we've seen in research is that if we let people, if we let women and men go into negotiations believing that an effective negotiator is someone who's assertive um, and looking to improve their individual outcomes, then men do really well and women do really poorly. Mm. Um, but if we prime a different mindset, so if we actually prime a mindset which says effective negotiators are those, those negotiators who communicate well, who show empathy, who are great problem solvers, all of a sudden that uh, difference is reversed and now women actually outperform men in negotiation. And so kind of coming back to this idea of what happens in a communal organisational culture, actually there it should be possible for women to negotiate, but to actually negotiate with a set of behaviours that come naturally, um, in a sense, more naturally to them than they seem to come to men. And they're supported by that culture. Exactly. So uh, I'm thinking then if a woman is negotiating in a more individualistic culture, can she evoke those stereotypes that you've just spoken that are successful uh, to have a better outcome in negotiating? Right. So there are a couple of things that we think women can do. Um, the first is to take away the shock and the surprise of negotiating. Mm. So it seems to be more effective if women signal in advance that they would like to negotiate an issue with their manager um, and then set a time to do it. It's also helpful then if they prime this idea of problem solving. 
to actually present this as kind of a problem that I'd like to discuss with you or an issue that needs to be resolved rather than using the negotiate word. Okay. <laughs> Just, yeah, it, it's, it may not sit comfortably, but, um, you know, research suggests that this is a way forward in the same way that saying that you're negotiating on behalf of your team rather than negotiating for yourself leads to improved outcomes for women. Um, and also shifting the attribution for negotiation behaviors. So if I just go into my manager and say, I really want, you know, I really want to renegotiate my contract, um, it's likely to incur this backlash that I've been talking about. But if I come in and say something like, um, you know, I've just been talking with my mentor and my mentor suggested that I should come in or, you know, I've just been to an industry seminar and I've learned a little bit about what the industry norms for contracts in this area are. That also seems to help. And it seems to help because it shifts the attribution for the ask away from the woman and from framing her maybe as being greedy to the situation. And it's saying, actually, because of this situation, I think that we should really talk about um, what my contract looks like. Before I ask you my next question, Mara, let's pause for a quick break. To those chosen to come here and to the organisations they represent, congratulations and welcome. You're making a clear announcement that you want to do more, achieve more, and be more. While you're with us, you'll be among the best, learning from the best. You'll leave changed, and then be called upon to lead change. So to you we say, welcome to Melbourne Business School. Welcome to the world class. Welcome back. I imagine um, that there'd be feedback around this concept that some perhaps feminists feel a bit aggravated or, or even, you know, people who may not fully identify as feminists would find it hard to think that they need to conform closer to a gender stereotype to get to where they want to be. Yes, it, 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 there is a lot of backlash yeah. <laughs> t towards this idea. So two of the women whose research I really like in this area concluded after sort of doing a survey of about 15 years of research that the best way forward for women at the moment in their negotiations is, as they put it, to harness the power of their gender stereotype. Um, and I don't think it sits well, and I think it doesn't sit well precisely because it feels like it's what we've been sort of fighting against all our lives. Mm. And so, you know, there are a couple of thoughts that I have on this. One is um, that, you know, we should think of this not as giving up, but as reframing the workplace. You know, our workplaces would be better workplaces if they were full of people who could engage in problem solving, who were more empathic, who were good communicators, who were concerned about relationships with other people in the workplace. All of these are highly desirable workplace behaviours and these, it's a culture that I would like to work in. So it really speaks to the need perhaps for culture change. I guess the second slightly more self-oriented perspective that I have is that, you know, I ask myself at the end of the day, do I want to stand on my pride and um, not enact these behaviours because they do go against the grain and against sort of the ideals of feminism and end up in a poorer situation mm. um, when I finish my work and I find that my retirement savings are, you know, two-thirds or a half of those of my male colleagues or do I want to figure out what the smart way of getting to where I want to be is? And, you know, and my choice has been to follow the path, I guess, that is going to get me to have an equitable outcome at the end of my career. 
So we've talked about um, we could do nothing or we could follow a gender stereotype to, to go forward. But if we do follow that more individualistic style, that male gendered approach, uh, you talked about a backlash. What sort of backlashes can people, women, experience if they go down that pathway? So a lot of the backlash that they experience is not necessarily in terms of their economic outcomes. So it's quite possible that they will actually negotiate the killer deal um, following that path because women can very effectively negotiate in an assertive way. Um, where they lose out is on what we call social outcomes. So they lose out in terms of uh, people's perceptions of them as sort of likeable or good work colleagues or good team members. And um, kind of we know from the broader lit literature on backlash that this spills over to affect performance appraisals, it can spill over into affecting promotion opportunities. So there can be actually quite long-term consequences which indirectly affect your economic outcomes even if on the day you manage to get a great deal for yourself. So you talked about social outcomes that uh, people might experience as a backlash um, when they go into negotiation in a more male gender stereotype way. What more could you tell us about that? Sure. So the interesting thing here is that um, there's a very big difference in the impressions that we form of women and men. So in general, we tend to form impressions of people on two dimensions. We form impressions in terms of their competence and in terms of their likability. So men tend to fall on the highly competent, not very likable quadrant of this sort of two-dimensional impression. Women fall, stereotypical women fall, um, in the highly likable, not competent um, quadrant, which interestingly is where we also find the elderly. Professional women tend also to sit with men in the competent but not likable, but the consequences of being perceived as competent but not likable for women and men are different mm. because when I end up in the competent but not likable quadrant, I've actually violated gender expectations. And so there are some negative attributions made about my uh, competence that men don't experience. Um, th so when I, as a woman, add these sort of agentic behaviours to my repertoire to become competent, I lose out on likability. The interesting thing is that we don't exactly see a mirror image pattern for men. So men who are agentic and perceived as competent, if they add relationship behaviours to their behavioural repertoire, they don't lose their perceived competence, they just add perceived likability. So when men violate their gender stereotypes by adding some female traits, they actually become um, they become seen as both highly likable and highly competent, whereas when women um, who start off with the expectation that they're likable but not necessarily competent add competence to their behavioural repertoire, it actually erodes their likability. Wow. Gee. <laughs> doesn't paint the best picture out there for people, does it, particularly for women? <laughs> it does not. And so one of the things that we've been interested in, in, given that this seems to be what happens when women negotiate, one of the things we've been interested in is can we offset that slide away from likability? Mm. And what our research suggests is that the order in which you present information about yourself at the start of a negotiation, say an employment contract negotiation, is quite consequential. So our natural inclination when we start an employment contract negotiation is usually to jump in and talk about our skills and our abilities and what makes, makes us valuable to the organisation, why we should you know, have improved working conditions. 
which fits perfectly well with the male gender stereotype, um, not so well with the female gender stereotype. Um, the alternative would be to start the negotiation um, by just engaging a little bit of social chit-chat, do some rapport building, um, maybe in a work context remind people of the contributions that you have made to the organisation. So in fact what you're doing is highlighting your likability and your warmth. And so the question then is, does it matter for women in terms of their negotiation outcomes, whether they start with this warmth-based story or a competence-based story. And our research suggests that they will do better in negotiations in, if they start with a warmth-based story and follow it with the competence information than if they start with the competence information. If they start with competence information, the warmth-based information isn't heard. Wow. Oh, that's really great advice for all women. But I'm thinking in particular for young women just starting out. Yes. Have you got any other thoughts for them as they enter this new world and start negotiating <laughs> their way through it? Um, so I think the first thing is uh, not to be afraid of negotiating, but to realise that the world in which women negotiate is different to the world in which men negotiate. So as you think through um, your strategies, plan in the knowledge that your negotiation will be interpreted differently. I think the other thing that's actually really important for women to understand is that negotiations don't run smoothly. So another big difference between women and men is that men are much more willing to push through what they call moments of discomfort, mm. whereas women tend to um, bail from negotiations when they start to feel uncomfortable or when things aren't going well. So I think the best way forward for managing that is to think ahead and to think about the ways in which the person you're negotiating with might not agree with you or might mm -hmm. try and block the goals that you're trying to achieve and already have some strategies in place. I think if you've kind of thought through all of those possibilities before you start and you're not caught unawares, it actually becomes more natural to push through those moments of discomfort. Is there a limit to those areas of discomfort that you might warn people to say, listen to that and perhaps you do need to perhaps back down or change strategy? Is yeah, I think um, a lot of times the moments of discomfort are triggered by what I would consider to be power plays. Right. So, And there are a number of ways that these power plays can come about. Uh, Debbie Kolb uh, at Harvard has spent a lot of time in workplaces actually looking at women and how they negotiate, and she talks about three groups of, um, I guess, power plays. And one group that I think is really interesting for us to think about is a set of behaviours that challenge us in some way. So sometimes the way that people try and divert us from a negotiation or try and block our goals is actually to call into question whether we have the skills, the competence, the abilities mm -hmm. to deserve what we're asking for. Um, sometimes they challenge the ideas that we're putting forward as not being worthwhile ideas. And sometimes they actually challenge the emotions that we're feeling in the context of negotiation. So I'm sure we've all heard you had someone say to us, you shouldn't be so upset about this or you shouldn't be so angry about this. Mm. It's actually a very effective way of shutting down communication. And we want to think about how we manage that. Um, and so there are a number of strategies, again, that Debbie Cobb talks about that I think are very helpful for us. And the one that I think is particularly effective is to just try and open the communication further rather than reacting to those challenges as a block to communication to just say, you know, basically I'm a little puzzled. I don't really kind of understand where you're headed with this. Can you just tell me a little bit more about your thinking behind this? Or, you know, I might seem upset to you, 
Um, let me explain that this is because I'm taking the situation very seriously. So it's always the path forward always is to work around these sort of blocks and challenges to our competence or to our ideas by looking for more information. It re-engages the person, um, but also at the same time redirects the conversation to a more problem-solving one, so it actually moves away from this power play. So the trick is not to get hooked into um, a conversation where you know, my manager says to me, you don't deserve that promotion because you don't have the skills mm -hmm. to do it. And I say, yes, I do because I've been acting in it. And you just you know, move into this sort of push-pushback phenomenon, which actually is not very helpful and just escalates the conflict. Mm -hmm. So what we look for is a path around it. Um, and what we try and do is reopen the channels of communication. The other way, if you don't feel confident um, sort of tackling this directly by reopening communication is actually to take a small break. This idea of interruptions is quite an interesting one. Um, and the idea behind it is that no matter how short the break is, if you interrupt the dynamic and the flow of a conversation or a negotiation, it can never start quite where it left off again. Right. Yeah. It's a little bit like counting to 10. You know, if, you, if you're sort of feeling emotional and you're trying to uh, de-escalate your own emotions. And so the break can be as short and simple as you stopping to have a sip of water or it can be more formal and it can be something like, you know, actually there's a lot of new information here that I need to think over. Could we come back and talk about this, you know, in half an hour or tomorrow when I've had some time to process the information? But whichever way you choose to do it, from the drink of water to the five-minute sort of stretch break to the let's come back tomorrow break, it means that in fact, everybody has had time to regroup and reconsider the situation. We come back and we actually do start the negotiation from a slightly different perspective, which can again help break this uh, potential cycle of escalating power struggles. And I imagine too in that that going in to um, talk about, if you're at that point where you're talking about your skills or your capabilities, uh, it would be worth making sure you feel that you can back yourself in those. So I imagine feeling confident to provide examples of what you've done or um, being realistic about what your breadth of capability is and perhaps where you do need to develop and being able to not acknowledge that yes. is a good thing to do. And so, in fact, I had a good example in a workshop that I ran when I was talking about these sort of potential blocks and challenges. Um, one of the participants talked about a situation she found herself in where she had been acting in a role for about 12 months and then the position was advertised and she applied and she wasn't considered for it. She challenged her manager who said, you know, because you don't have the necessary, necessary skills and competencies. And, you know, she was angry and upset because she had been acting in the role mm. for a year and had received no feedback of that kind. And, in fact, it is kind of problematic that you let a person do that anyway. So she pursued this with her manager and, you know, eventually the conversation did come around to some of the skills that he thought she needed to develop. And so she used that conversation as the way to negotiate into um, an executive um, program on leadership skills. Right. So, you know, there was a positive outcome at the end of it, not quite the one that she expected. And so sometimes, you know, the path forward is not what we expect, but as long as we can keep the conversation open... It, it helps us in the long run. Mara, thank you. There have been terrific insights into the world of negotiating for yourself, so thank you very much. 
If you'd like to hear more on negotiation, be sure to listen to some of our other podcasts or visit our website at mbs.edu.